Good morning. We're the Singh family, and we'll do the Advent reading. Okay, this is Advent week one. Throughout church history, the church has celebrated the birth of Jesus with a several-week preparatory time known as Advent. Advent comes from the Latin word for coming. Today is the first week of Advent, and we begin to prepare our hearts spiritually by focusing on the wonderful good news of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. In just a moment, we are going to light a candle called the Candle of Hope. May the light of this candle remind us that God's plan of salvation was fulfilled in the coming of Christ Jesus, who, according to John 1, verses 9 through 12, is the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, Old Testament prophets told of his coming. One of those prophets, Isaiah, prophesied around 800 years before Jesus' birth. His ministry was to Old Testament Israel, during a time when the people of Israel had rebelled and were concerned that God had forgotten or left them. To assure the people that God had not forgotten them, Isaiah gave a special message of hope about a coming Savior. Isaiah 9, 2, and 6 through 7. Verse 2 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Verses 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What wonderful words of hope. For our Old Testament Israel, and what wonderful words of hope for us today when we realize God's word was fulfilled in the coming of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Now we'll light the purple candle. Good morning, church. My name is Jeremy Pruitt. I'm one of your deacons. Please join me in prayer this morning. Father God, we thank you so much for this time of year, uh, for Christmas season. We thank you that it's not just about uh, a baby born to a virgin, but that that baby grew, became a man, lived on this earth, was tempted just like we are, and yet because he was without sin, he did not uh, take those temptations He stayed perfect, and then, through your design, was was put to death on a cross. And that cross gives us hope that we have salvation through Jesus Christ, that Christ bridged the gap between our sinful nature and your perfect holiness. And we thank you for the reminder of that through this season. We pray that as we get busy with the uh, hustle and bustle of Christmas, that we won't uh, focus too much on what gifts we're going to give or what gifts we're going to get, but that we can focus on you and on the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We also pray for Gary Moffat as he is undergoing some more tests. Pray that you'll give the doctor wisdom um, that they will be able to uh, help with his um, issues and that be able to give him a better um, way of life and uh, more comfort in, in all of that. We also pray for uh, our Victory Mission food pantry that we do. We pray that you will send people to our doors and send people that need to hear, not only uh, to hear about your word, but also to be fed physically, um, and that we can, we can do both physical and spiritual feeding through this, this ministry. Um, I know as, as the last few days I've gotten to help uh, tell the God, tell the story of Jesus' birth, uh, life, death, and resurrection. I know that there's many more uh, churches that are going to be presenting that message to people. We pray that um, each one of those those presentations 
uh, will be impactful to someone, that someone will leave that um, knowing, knowing you um, and being, um, just being impacted to, to make a decision for Christ, to accept him as their Lord and Savior. We also pray uh, for our church as we um, make decisions for uh, the future of the church as well as, uh, as for financial decisions. We thank you for our ability to pay off our building, and we pray that you'll just be with us as we make decisions moving forward. And we just, again, want to thank you for the many blessings that we have, things that we are, are not, uh, should not be privileged to have, um, but you give them to us anyways. And you request nothing of us but to believe in your son, to repent of our sin, and to be baptized. And it's in your precious son's name we pray. Amen. Children are dismissed. So how many of you guys have uh, been Christmas shopping yet? Have you started? Did you get out on Black Friday? Did you do your Cyber Monday deals? I'm, I'm curious what percentage of Christmas is purchased online now. Uh, in my opinion, that's the only way to go because it's crazy out there. Uh, the traffic, I don't, I don't know where these people come from, but this time of year, the traffic goes from just normal bad to insane. Uh, I just went like six blocks down Sunshine yesterday and just was like, why did I do this? This was a mistake. Uh, I couldn't wait to get home. Uh, this time of year is just crazy. As Jeremy prayed, it's so easy to get caught in the hustle and bustle and the hecticness of the Christmas season. It's not only busy, it's expensive. This is a pricey time of year. I have uh, over the years, I, I've shared with you guys, I think hopefully those of you who have been with us a while have seen my transformation and my sanctification from being a Scrooge with a teeny tiny heart to a heart that is growing more and more. Uh, I used to really not like Christmas, but through the accountability of the church, uh, I have really tried hard to focus on the gift of God's Son and to celebrate this time of year. Uh, however, that is often uh, a, a discipline because the materialism of this, kind, this time of year kind of wears me out. Amen? Okay, and you know what? I think that's okay. I think it's okay that the materialism of this time of year wears us out. Now, on the one hand, I've got to be honest, the Christmas season is kind of great. Now, think about how self-centered and absorbed we are, self-absorbed we are as a culture. We actually have a month in the calendar that is supposed to be, that's the key phrase there, supposed to be, supposed to be about generosity and supposed to be about giving. Like, we actually build it into our schedule. That is a great and wonderful thing. But on the other hand, the giving can be more about materialistic impulses, or trying to win the approval of others, uh, including our families, right? It can become about being the one who gives the best gift, or even simply about trying to help your family keep up with the Joneses. So there is this fine line we have to walk during the Christmas season. How do we be generous? How do we live in a giving way? How do we make sure we're disciplined in thinking of others, all the while making sure that we don't get caught up in this season of excess, overindulgence, greed, and proving your worth to others? So as much as this can be a unique challenge for the Christmas season, I think if we're honest, this is a struggle that we all face every day, all of our life. 
How do we balance generosity with the fact that we have basic needs in our life, that our world functions around money? The Lord knows that we need money to survive. And if you read the scriptures carefully, having money is never universally condemned in the Bible. Here's the thing. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're middle class or hope to someday be middle class once you start your career. The fact of the matter is we all have resources at our disposal. You may not have much money, but we all have some money. We all have our time. We all have our personal energy. All of these things are resources that the Lord has given us that are at our disposal to be used for his glory. So the question becomes, how do we leverage these resources? Do we use them for our advantage, for our own good, or do we leverage them for the kingdom of God? Today we're going to be looking at uh, a parable that, that Jesus tells that is perhaps one of the hardest parables in the Bible to interpret. Uh, but, but let me give you the gist of the interpretation. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 16. So go ahead and open your Bibles. Please follow along. If you don't have a Bible, just grab that pew Bible right in front of you, uh, and we'll be in Luke chapter 16. Uh, let me just give you the, the gist of that interpretation, and then we'll start unpacking it, okay? So this parable draws out humanity's clever methods of leveraging money for our own good. Like, this is something we know how to do. You know you don't have to teach a kid how to lie like they just know Okay, in the same way, we know how to leverage the resources at our disposal for our own individual benefit. So Jesus tells this parable, and then he says, in the same way that the world is really good at using money for its own self-interest, followers of Jesus should be just as clever at using money for the good of others. So here's, the, here's the, uh, the point of the parable of the dishonest manager. And we're going to come back to this idea over and over again. So if you want to write this down, this is the, the point of the parable. Jesus instructs his followers to be creative and clever and using their resources for the good of others and the kingdom. Okay? Jesus instructs his followers to be creative and clever and using their resources for the good of others and the kingdom. Now, let's read this parable. And if you're not familiar with this parable, as you've written this down, when I'm done reading it, you're going to go, are you sure, Brandon? Are you really sure that that's what this parable is saying? And I think by the end of today, you'll understand how I came to these conclusions. All right, so let's dive in. Let's read chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. He, Jesus, also said to the disciples, so it's important, he's talking to the disciples, but in just a moment, we're going to see that the Pharisees heard this same teaching. Okay? All right. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So we have a manager wasting the possessions of the rich man. Verse 2. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management. For you can no longer be manager. He's about to get fired. Verse 3. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do. So that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So what's going on here? He says, I want to make sure I have a job after I get canned. That's what's going on. All right, so let's, let's look at verse 5. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, set down, and quickly write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commit, this is weird, okay? The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of the world were more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that 
when it fails, they may receive you into the earthly dwellings. Verse 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. All right. Now, this parable is a weird one. And I don't know if pastors are allowed to say that or not, but I believe in being transparent and authentic. And this one was a weird one. It was one that had me stumped. So all week long, I mean, I just read and reread this passage. I, I took notes and I argued with myself and I, I arrived at a conclusion, talked to Jim, talked to Clark, talked to Josh. We're working on these things. It's like, I don't know. I don't think that's right. I don't know. I don't think that's right. And I worked myself in circle after circle after circle and finally got to where I thought, all right, all right, I think I know where I land. So this, this is my method. Study, come to my own conclusions. Then I go talk to the professionals. I get out my commentaries. So I get out all my commentaries and I'm looking forward to seeing how everyone agrees with me, right? So uh, I open the commentaries, and guess what they all say? This is one of the hardest of Jesus' uh, parables to interpret. And I'm like, okay, good. Well, at least I'm in good company here, right? And then each commentary gives like five different interpretations. What is this nonsense? Like, help me out here. What conclusions are we supposed to draw? So if you end up disagreeing with me at the end of this, this uh, teaching, then guess what? You're in good company. Okay, evidently people are pretty divided over this. But here's what I want to do. My goal today is to provide clarity. My goal today is to give you guys an interpretation of this parable that is consistent with who Jesus is, all right? And not only consistent with who Jesus is, but consistent with how Jesus presents the gospel in the book of Luke. And I think by the end of today, you're going to go, yeah, that makes sense. Now, as we look at this passage, there are so many ways to misinterpret it. And as we misinterpret this passage, we can end up in some crazy places, okay? Now, we just came off last week the parable of the, uh, the, the, parable of the uh, prodigal son, right? The parable of the prodigal son. And so as we look at the parable of the prodigal son, there's all these different ways to interpret things, right? So we've got the, the son. The, 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 there's three characters. There's the, the wayward son. There's the... Uh, son that's a little more sneaky in his rebellion. And then there is the, the father, right? We have all these characters. And then we kind of unpack it and we see the symbolism in all these characters. And it's easy to think, now, what we should do is come right off the parable of the prodigal son and start applying the same method of interpretation to this parable. We got a rich dude, we got a rich dude. Are they both God? Is that what's going on here? So before we dig into the parable, I want to offer you a principle of interpretation, okay? This is a principle of interpretation that you just need to remember in general as you come to uh, the parables of Jesus, okay? Now, this is not uh, 100% true. It is a general principle that is a helpful guideline. So, so here's the principle when it comes to interpreting a parable of Jesus, Unless Jesus specifically interprets the parable, you should first assume the parable makes one central point. All right, when you come to a parable of Jesus, you should first assume that the parable makes one central point. So, when I sat down on this parable, I made a list of questions. All right, who's the rich guy? Who's the manager? What is this forgiveness, of, or what is the, the, the reduction of debt? You know, and I made this whole list of questions that I drew out here to try to tie a symbol to every single thing. And as I got into this, and I'm trying to clarify, I got so deep in the weeds, I got lost. And I forgot this fundamental principle of interpretation. When you come to a parable of Jesus, most of the time, he's only making one central point. So what is the one central point that Jesus is teaching us in this parable. And that is this. Jesus is instructing his followers to be creative 
and clever in using their resources for the good of others and the kingdom of God. Now, how do you get that interpretation? Great question. The next rule of interpretation is context is king. How does the context of the passage help us understand what Jesus is telling us? If only there was some context immediately around this parable that gave us some clarity. Oh, wait. There is. Let's look at the next verses. So how does our, our, our uh, parable end? It ends with the idea that you cannot serve both God and money. That's what it says at the end of 13. Now, he's talking to the disciples. We saw that at the beginning. But then what do we see in Luke 16, 14 through 16? The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things. So who was listening while Jesus was talking to the disciples? The Pharisees. And they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Man, what are we experts at as human beings? Man, just like you don't have to tell a kid to lie, you don't have to tell a kid, teach a kid how to justify their behavior, right? You ever have your, your child or somebody you know, somebody under your authority make a mistake and you ask them the question, what made you think that was a good idea? And what do they begin to do? They defend themselves over and over again. We are experts in justifying our bad behavior, right? I think that's universally uh, true and, and accepted. So what does Jesus say here in verse 15? He said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So how do these, how do these uh, two verses help us see what Jesus is addressing in the whole passage? Like we said a second ago, the end of verse 13 says you cannot serve both God and money. Then immediately verse 14 begins with the Pharisees who were lovers of money. This lets us know that Jesus is addressing the actions and motivations of the Pharisees through this parable. So, what are the actions and motivations of the Pharisees? They seek to justify themselves before men, which is exactly what the dishonest manager is doing. He was trying to justify himself to other people so that he would have a job after he got fired. Okay? So what's Jesus saying? You, uh, you guys are ones who justify themselves uh, before men. What do we see? The dishonest manager justifying himself before men. God knows the hearts of the Pharisees. He knows the heart of this dishonest manager. And then Jesus goes on. He says, what is exalted among men is an abomination to God. So as Jesus is addressing this, these Pharisees who have a heart that loves money, okay, Jesus is saying that they're self-preserving Greedy behavior is an abomination. Okay? What is Jesus condemning? He is condemning that self-preserving, greedy nature of the Pharisees. Now, what is condemned by God is commended by men. Let's look at verse 8, back in the parable. What is exalted among men, according to the parable. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Okay, so what we see here in the parable is not God as the rich man. If we think God is the rich man, we're going to get off in a crazy place. Okay? What we see here. Is, is the rich man is a businessman, and the, uh, the, the manager, the shrewd manager, is, is a, a businessman. So both these guys are businessmen. And, and what we almost get here in this parable is this guy, he, he rips off the, the manager, the owner. He rips off the rich guy. 
And he was already going to get canned. And it's like the rich guy comes up to him and says, all right, game recognizes game, right? Well done. You're still fired, okay? That, that's what's going on in this. It's not that God is in the position of authority and he's commending this dishonest behavior. What's it say in the text? It says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So we have a parable here that presents two people in the same generation. So as they are in the same generation, it's a game recognizes game situation. These are two people who are shrewd in their business dealings. They, why is he firing the guy? He's firing the guy. The rich man is firing the manager because he's not good for business. So he's looking out for himself. And why is the uh, dishonest manager selling all the stuff off? Because he wants a job after he gets canned. He's looking out for himself. So what Jesus does is he presents this reality, this way that all people know how to look out for themselves and how they get real clever and real sneaky and how they come up with these plans to look out for themselves. And Jesus then contrasts the way the world applies their cleverness toward finances to the way that the sons of light, his followers, should apply their cleverness and uh, thoughtfulness with the resources available in their lives. So Jesus' whole point here is, is to say, don't look to apply your cleverness for your own benefit, but be creative and clever in using your resources for the good of others and the kingdom. Now, you're wondering, okay, well, where does Jesus say that? Where does he say, use your resources for the good of others in the kingdom? Again, I'm glad you asked. Let's jump back into the parable and let's look at verses 9 through 13 and I think it'll start to make sense to you. Okay, verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the righteous, unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Okay, verse 9 I think it's the last really confusing part of the passage. And once we understand this part, I think the rest really begins to make uh, a lot of sense. Okay, so Jesus tells us in verse 9 to make friends by means of unrighteous wealth. Just put that on a t-shirt, right? I mean, that's a weird thing to see in Scripture. Go make friends by unrighteous wealth. Okay, so what, what is it that's really going on here? Now, we need to keep the interpretation simple, all right? When we look at unrighteous wealth, we should see it as contrasted against eternal things. This unrighteous wealth should not be viewed as ill-gotten gains or like money that came from crime or from fraud or from ripping people off. When it says unrighteous wealth, all Jesus and Luke are really after is earthly money, okay? This is really about earthly money. Now, when you see this, you see, all right, make friends with your earthly money. All right, that's, that's still not quite, quite unpacking everything that's going on. So why would he say uh, what he says? He goes on and he says, so that when earthly money fails, they, and who's the they? The they is your new friends that you made, may receive you into eternal dwellings. All right, now when we read that, they, they are receiving us into eternal dwellings? What, what is going on here? Are these people like the gatekeepers of heaven? So really what we do is we leverage the money that we have on earth in order to make friends so that those people let us into heaven? That's not at all what it's saying. But like if you just read it literally, you can draw that conclusion. And I don't want us to do that. So what's going on here with this word receive? The word receive here 
has the, uh, the idea of hospitality in it. As a matter of fact, the New Testament translates this word as welcome. And that's a much better word. They welcome you into the eternal dwellings. Now think about that and the way Jesus talks about wealth and, and these things. And it begins to make more sense. What Jesus is really doing is he is saying that these people are in heaven and they are waiting for you and they are welcoming you when you arrive. It's as if they became followers of Jesus and became your friends, here, listen to this, through your generosity. So you had this earthly resource available to you, and Jesus says, use that wealth, use those earthly resources to make friends, to to impact them, to be generous, to show them what life in the kingdom is like. Be generous using your resources to influence others for the kingdom. And then when you die, they'll be there to welcome you in eternity. So if I could paraphrase this, this is what I would say. This is Brandon's paraphrase of verse 9. It's this. Use your earthly money generously to help you build relationships with people here and now on earth. Your money is going to fail you anyway. But if you use your money to point people to the kingdom of God, then when you die and your money fails, they will be in heaven to welcome you when you get there. That's the heart of the message of verse 9. The whole point of Jesus' parable is that we already know how to be shrewd and clever with our money. So apply the same level of creativity and cleverness to using our resources for the good of others in the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying. I bet bet most of you guys have heard this old saying. The only thing that you can take with you to heaven is your friends. The only thing that you can take with you to heaven is your friends. I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Don't spend so much time accumulating wealth for yourself. Don't spend so much time investing in your own comfort and security. Instead, make friends with your resources. Now, in that mindset, he's saying be others-focused. Look beyond yourself. Be generous. Use this level of creativity and cleverness that we're all bent toward to serve our own selfish desires. Use that same creativity to be generous and outwardly focused. In fact, Jesus said something very similar to this idea of using our resources for the advancement of the kingdom back in Luke chapter 12, verses 33 through 34. Jesus says this, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart, there will your heart be also. Like this is the this is the positive, and what we're reading today in Luke is the negative of the same thing. We don't be so rooted in earthly things. Don't have your mind set on the shrewdness of the world and the creativity and cleverness of the world to gain all this stuff. Instead, apply that same level of creativity and shrewdness to being others-focused and leveraging, leveraging the resources God has put in your care for the advancements of the kingdom. You see, so we should not think of money as evil. Rather... It's a tool. It's a tool that can be used for the kingdom, for making friends, right? That's what Jesus tells us to do. Use this unrighteous wealth to make friends, to build relationships, to invest in others. But it can be used for evil, just like we've already seen. I want to read a very uh, famous passage to you guys from the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6. You all know this. Starting in verse 6, going through 10, it says... But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless 
and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul specifies that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money leads us to be selfish. The love of money leads us to be greedy. And similarly, it prevents us from being generous and content. But if we are content, we can hold our possessions and our wealth and any resources that we have at our disposal, be it our time or energy or money, we can hold those loosely, okay? If we are content, we can hold those resources loosely. I like the way that the ESV translates verse 10 in 1 Timothy 6. It says, it is through this craving. I like that word craving. It really hits at the shrewdness of the dishonest manager. He didn't want to dig ditches, right? He didn't want to beg. He craved the continuation of this life of ease. So, in his desire to maintain this life of ease, he became crafty and clever and shrewd, and he abused his authority. And frankly, he stole from his master in order to help himself have a better future, right? So when Jesus flips this parable in the application phase here in in Luke 16, he challenges us, his disciples, to have that same kind of craving for the things of the kingdom of God. He wants us to have the same kind of craving for the things of the kingdom of God. And I think that's where we really struggle as Americans. I think think this is where I struggle. I don't always crave generosity. Nobody wants to hear that from their pastor. But I, I can't be alone, right? We don't always crave generosity. For me, generosity is a discipline. I have have to plan it. I have to schedule it. I have to make sure I've budgeted generosity. And in many ways, guys, that's good. Okay? That's a good thing. But I love the idea of craving generosity. I don't. Oh, man. I didn't just say I struggle with it. I said I don't. Man, you guys have a really worldly pastor. Just keep praying for me and sanctification. He's already growing my heart toward Christmas. Maybe I can become truly generous. All right, so in the same way, I, I, I think many of us tend to believe that our resources are our own and not God's. We tend to believe that our money will last. And when we see our money as ours, and when we see our money as something that will last or that it satisfies, then we become slow to part with it. If, if it'll last, if it's ours, if it satisfies, then we're slow to part with it. But if we begin to see it won't last, it's always God's, it will never satisfy, then we don't need to hang on to it so tightly. Guys, I have seen the Lord be, be faithful, and I have seen his amazing ability to meet needs. So in just a second, I'm going to talk about this idea of generosity. And as we talk about generosity for the next couple of minutes, what I don't want you to think is that somehow I'm trying to leverage guilt to get you all to give more to the church. Okay? I'm not. I don't do that. The Holy Spirit's conviction is all you need. Okay? You don't need me to leverage guilt. But if I'm going to be a faithful pastor, I have to present the word as it's taught. So what we need to think about here is why is God so concerned with our generosity? Why does he need us to be generous? Well, I need to need anything. Let me rephrase that. Why does he desire for us to be generous? And I think it's this. Money is so easily an idol that distracts us from who God is, from dependence on him, that he wants to break that cycle. 
So what God has done in his commands for us to be generous has built into his commands for us the action of casting down our idols. When you express generosity, you are actively casting down the idol of money. I want to read to you guys from Isaiah chapter 2. All right, God is bringing his judgment on the people of Israel. They have forgotten God and they have embraced idol worship. So Isaiah is telling the people that God has rejected them and that he is bringing his judgment on them. Now I want you to listen to how Isaiah describes God's people in verses 6 through 8. It says this, For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob. That's God. God has rejected the house of Jacob, Israel. Because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. They strike the hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. So what do we see? Wealth, right? Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Again, symbols of wealth. Their land is filled with idols. They bow to the work of their hands. Now, what I find interesting here is literally an idol is made by the work of their hands. They craft an idol. But when it comes to money in America, how does it... We we gain that money by the work of our hands. I think that's interesting. So their land is filled with idols. They bow to the work of their hands to do what their own... Yeah, to what their own fingers have made. So these people are chasing after the work of their own hands. They have wealth. They're trusting their work. They're trusting their idols. And the chapter goes on to describe the judgment that God is going to send on Israel. Then at the close of the chapter, Isaiah describes an interesting scene. Listen to the end of of this chapter, starting in verse 20. It says, In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they have made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. God's judgment is coming. And when they recognize that God's judgment is coming, what do they do? They cast down their idols. Part of what repentance is, is casting down your idols. God calling us to a spirit of generosity is calling us to cast down the idol of wealth and money. See, here's what you have to understand. What you have to understand. God is not calling us to be generous because he needs our money. He's calling us to be generous, to give, because it's good for our soul. Do you believe that? If you don't believe that, might I suggest you're struggling with money as an idol. I should just let that hang there for just a little longer. I know what some of you are saying. You're thinking... I don't have money. Sure you do. You also have resources. And not all resources are money. Okay? You have time. You have energy. And if the widow in Scripture can give the last piece of money she had to buy bread for the day to eat, if you're an American, you have money. Okay? So, what is he calling us to do? He's calling us to be creative and crafty in how we leverage our resources for generosity. We will scheme and hustle, right, in order to accumulate more wealth for our own self interest. But how often are we creative and crafty? and shrewd 
for the purpose of generosity. Man, that hurts this guy right here. Like, I just want you guys to know that when the scripture is stepping on your toes, it's stepping on mine, and, and I have to still say it, even though it hurts me too, right? Like, this is a level of intentionality. We have to plan for it. And it is good for us, which is why Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. What a joy it is to give to the Lord. What a joy it is to give generously. He has blessed us so much. So much. Do we even begin to understand how good our God is? Now, if we start playing the comparison game, he may have blessed somebody a little more than he's blessed me, and that's not fair. That's a losing game. That's a, we never compare down, do we? We always compare up. I find that interesting. But he has been so good to us. And as he's been good to us, he does not want us to set up those blessings as idols. So in his wisdom, he's instructed us, be clever, be crafty, be shrewd in how you are using that wealth, those blessings, for the good of others. Make friends, build relationships, advance the kingdom with your resources so that when you get to heaven, they might be there to greet you. That's awesome. When we start thinking of it that way, what is Jesus teaching us? Use our resources in a way that may lead others to come to Christ so that when we get to heaven, we can spend eternity with them. Now listen to how Jesus ends the parable in verses 10 through 13. He says, One who is faithful in a very little, it, <clears throat> one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the un righteous wealth, these, these earthly resources that won't last, who will entrust you to true riches? Man, what Jesus is saying right there in that little, that little section is that, that as God has blessed us with earthly resources, we have a responsibility as followers of Christ to use those resources the way God would have us. And if we don't, He's not going to trust us with true riches. He's not going to trust us with true riches. We'll miss out on bigger blessings, blessings that probably have absolutely nothing to do with material wealth. I don't know what that is. Jesus doesn't specify. He leaves it pretty open. But he says you're going to miss out on true riches if you're so concerned with yourself that you're leveraging unrighteous wealth for unrighteous gain. Instead, have your heart set on the kingdom of God. Be faithful with what he's given you so that he might put more in your care. Verse 12. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one or love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. He just says it so plain there at the end. You can't serve both God and money. This means we can't let our money become an idol. And he gives us the game plan to make sure our money doesn't become an idol. Don't get attached to it. Give it away. Give it away. Well, I don't know how to do that. Jesus says, get creative. Get creative. If you didn't have money, what would you do? You'd get creative. So get creative in being generous. I love how Jesus draws a straight line from how we treat our money to the spiritual condition of our heart. Man, straight line. What does your relationship with money 
reveal about your heart. That's the question I want you guys to reflect on as we move into our closing today. What does your heart toward money reveal about your spiritual condition? Are you generous with your money? If you think you can't be because you're broke, then then pray that God would help reveal to you clever ways which you can be generous. We can worship the idol of money just as much while being broke as while being rich. You know? Broke people are always wondering how they're going to pay their bills. That's an obsession with money. In both ways, we can be obsessed with money. So ask yourself, what is my relationship to money? How is God calling me to change my perspective on money so that it's no longer an idol and I can serve God without this distraction? Let me ask you this. Are you constantly looking for the next way to make your life better and easier, or are you looking for ways to be generous? As we sing this last song, meditate on that. Lord, am I looking for ways to make my life better and easier, or am I looking for ways to be generous? Ask the Lord today, how am I doing at managing the resources that you have put in my care? Ask the Lord, am I depending on you daily, or am I depending on my own ability to meet my needs? Ask him, Lord, in what ways are you calling me to lay down the idol of money? Would you guys pray with me as the praise team comes and and leads us in a song? Lord, we, we ask that you'd help us to be creative. We ask you, Lord, that you would move our hearts to generosity. As a culture, we are obsessed with material things. Knock down that idol. Thank you, Lord, for this command to be generous. Thank you, Lord, for the encouragement and instruction to be creative so that we can't be reductionistic and say, I don't have any money, I can't be generous. Thank you, Lord, for that challenge. We thank you, God, for the way you have been generous. You were very creative. You could have just given Israel more money. You could have raised an army. But in your creativity and generosity, the God of heaven stepped out of eternity and came to earth and blessed us with your divine presence. And you paid the ultimate sacrifice for us in your death and raised us to new life with you by faith in your resurrection. Father, I pray that we would see your generous spirit and we would move to be as generous as you are. It's in your name we pray.